Hello and welcome to the EG Coffee Podcast with me, EG Editor Sam McClary. And welcome to episode two of our latest run of Fundamentals of the Future recordings. This episode, recorded live as part of a panel discussion at EG Sustainable Outcomes Make a Better ESG Discussions event, takes a look at what needs to change for real estate to deliver on its net zero ambitions. Listen in to hear what the industry can expect from former Energy Minister Chris Skidmore's soon-to-be-released Net Zero Review, and how, when it comes to regulatory sticks, the one that is really needed is based solidly around data sharing. Listen in for key insights from Bim Afalami, MP and Energy and Climate Change Intelligent Unit member, Jose Alvarez, Head of Building Physics at Hollis, John Davies, Head of Sustainability at Derwent London, Alex Hill, Managing Director of ZTP, and Sarah Ratcliffe, Chief Executive of the Better Buildings Partnership. This episode was recorded outside of EG's specialist podcast studio, so while the audio quality may not be as smooth and clear as you've come to expect, I can promise that the quality of the content will be out of this world. And a mild parental warning that this episode does contain too many references to balls. Enjoy. Um, this discussion is about uh, COP26 and, and where have we come in the, in the year uh, since uh, that excellent uh, time up in, up in Glasgow. And I want to um, jump, actually, Sarah, to you talked about all of the, all of the targets that all of, um, so many people in real estate have set. But actually, what we want to talk about here is the, is the action. And you, you showed that picture of those young people who are watching us. And the big message that, that I certainly heard at COP26 was those young people saying, we don't, we don't want to hear any more about targets. We want to hear what you've actually done. So I think there's no better place to start this conversation with what have we actually done. And uh, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw to you first. You know, I know, I know, like, on me. Derwent, talk, Derwent talks a lot about what it can, what it can do. So yep. tell us what, what have you done since Glasgow 2021? Tried to tick off the list. How are you, how are you doing on it? <laughs> I think, I think we're, I think we're doing okay. I think the, um, uh, I think the, the seismic shift, I think everybody was kind of expecting after, after November, uh, um, was I think a little bit premature. I think it's a case now of, as, as Sarah sort of said, knuckling down and getting it done. Um, I think one of the one of the key um, sort of aspects that we're still trying to grapple with, and it's, and it's linked to this sort of scope three um, uh, sort of conundrum, I think, is is how do we actually engage our occupiers effectively to make come alive all the good work we're trying to put into our buildings. And I think. You, we can put all the all the best low carbon materials together in the most low carbon efficient way, run it really efficiently from a landlord perspective. But as soon as a tenant comes in who doesn't understand or doesn't have the same ideology in terms of how they want to run the building, i.e., they want to run it like they've always done, all that all that hard work kind of evaporates. And I think that's ultimately for real estate. It's that. I mean, we talked about radical collaboration. I think that was a bit of a, a strong word used at COP27, strong set of words used at COP27. But it is really real in terms of how, how on earth do we get the two sides of that coin to come together and make it happen? Because once it does, it will all, it will all start to slot into place. Mm -hmm. And the sort of the mechanics around, you know, green leases or the, or the contractual structure that you use is really relevant. However, that's only one point in time. Because as soon as the lease is signed, sort of to one side, we get into the, the sort of meat and potatoes of the of the of the uh, of the exercise. And I think until we get some kind of onus back onto both parties, because at the moment all of the onus sits with us as a landlord to make it everything happen, and we're fine with having the burden placed on us, but we need some kind of incentivization or some kind of something for the occupier to take on board as, as their role within that particular. Uh, that particular conundrum. Fantastic, thank you. And I want to stick with that radical collaboration because I think it was really powerful 
um, set, of, set of words and something we absolutely need to hold on to. And Bim, I'd love to bring you in here because John's talking about radical collaboration between landlords and occupiers, but actually we need it between government and landlords and occupiers as, as well. How do, how do you see whether there's been any change over the past year or, or, or what you want to see going forward with how real estate and politics works together? Well, thanks very much for that. I, I'm, I think that this whole question is simple, actually, though it's not easy. <laughs> uh, and we, people often conflate the usage of those two words. It is simple insofar as, when I was listening to you, John, you say, how do you get this to happen? There's one word, and that's money. <laughs> and money is at the core of the problem and the opportunity. So if we take where, how we've got to where we are and, and what's happened, what's basically happened is recession and war. That's what's happened since COP26. Interest rates going up, inflation, these are the things that have happened since COP26. And if I were to say to you, say a couple of years ago, you have this big environmental conference and then there's a huge economic problem and a war in Europe, do you think people will be more or less concerned with environmental challenges for the future? What would you say? You'd have said, well, people would be less concerned because they're thinking about war, inflation, cost. So actually, the fact that there's been much less progress over the last year than we'd like is not a surprise, or at least not a surprise to me, and I don't think it should be a surprise to anybody else. However, there is an opportunity within that. So I talked about the problem, what are the opportunities? The opportunity is that now, and I hate to break it to everybody, but you know, even when the war in the Ukraine comes to some sort of conclusion, and obviously I'm not predicting if and, and how that happens, energy's not gonna be like it was before. It's not gonna go back to being super cheap for all sorts of structural reasons, both to do with the net zero challenge and to do with uh, geopolitical reasons to do with oil and gas. So that means that there is a radical incentive for tenants, for owners of buildings in every single sector to reduce their usage of energy. That big thing I don't think is going away and, and if we can use cost to drive that investment whether it be on your side and indeed on the tenants usage so for example if landlords start saying to tenants well we have put in all these things if you are not using them in the way that they've been put in there is a penalty clause built into your contract and if that becomes market standard then guess what people learn how to use stuff right so I think that that's first thing on the I suppose the second thing I'd say about that, and the last thing, is it's not just the usage of, of energy in a building, it's the materials, as you were saying. And this is the bit where I think government can be most relevant. Because if you can get an economic advantage by being the first mover in using lower carbon materials to doing the same things that we do today, that is a huge opportunity for the UK. It's a huge opportunity for UK science and te technology and universities and jobs and all of these things. And actually, government needs to be thinking a lot more creatively about how those things could work with the advice of, of people in this room and people on this panel. Because if we can do that, then there's a win-win for government and individuals. Fantastic. Thank you. Alex, I want to I bring you in here because there was talk there clearly about how do we, how do we manage energy? How do we... How do we not, not use uh, the war in Ukraine, not use inflation as an excuse? How do we come up with the solutions that allow people to, to uh, mitigate, mitigate life, I suppose? That's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we've, we've got an interesting viewpoint on it because obviously we look at it from both the energy... energy. Have I turned into an angel? What's going on? <laughs> We can hear you. That's, yeah. that's all. I am here. <laughs> Bow down and praise me. Um, that, that is, is that just me or is that that's sounding really weird? It's anyway. Um, okay, cool. So I think we've got an interesting viewpoint because of the fact that we um, do the procurement side. So we see the price increase and we see how the impact that's had on the end user. Um, we've got some clients who locked out two years ago for three or four years and the, the world is, is normal to them. Nothing's changed. We've got clients who came to an end of a contract in September and their bills have gone from £20,000 a month to, to £90,000 to £100,000 a month. It's significant. Obviously, the government you know, uh, discounts may make a big play on that. But 
Um, but those are short-term, right? It's a short-term blip in, you know, yes, it's not going to go back to a £50 a megawatt hour that it was, you know, last summer, um, but hopefully it'll come back down to, say, 100 You know, it won't see the likes of £700 a megawatt hour that it was um, back in September. But in order to make a huge change in terms of consumption, because I think everyone knows the big thing to do now is to, to reduce your consumption. That's how you save money. You're not going to do it by procuring effectively. You know, there's not an opportunity to buy at, 2020 prices. It's just not going to happen. So we need to reduce consumption. And everyone we speak to on the, the, you know, the, the digital side, the software side, the energy reduction side is saying, yeah, great. That we, and we sort of know how to do it. Everyone knows the technology. Everyone knows the, the method, you know, how to reduce less. You know, it's hearts and minds. It's reach out, you know, save 15, 20% by, by just reaching out to people and saying, this is what you're doing and shining a light on how much you're consuming and where you're consuming it. We know about renewables. We know about LED lighting. All that technology is there. And yes, there's some very um, sort of interesting things happening around low-carbon building materials. But as you know, Sarah said, 80% of the building stock is still going to be here in 2050. That's not going to solve the problem for, for the majority of people. Um, but it's about how do we actually turn that knowledge of what we need to do into actually doing it. And that's, I think, the thing that's been happening this year is, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's happening. I think people are now facing up to the, the, the issue and the problem of how do we actually... How do we actually do it? You know, how do we get the occupier to engage with the landlord? How do we get the, the managing agent? Because it's not just occupier landlord. There's a managing agent sitting in the middle there. You, know, you can have a, managing, uh, 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 a fund manager or, or a property owner, a landlord, who's really keen on pushing the green agenda and getting, getting the rollout done. You can have um, occupiers who want to do it, but the land, um, managing agent sitting in the middle going, well, do I have a remit for this? Is that part of what we're doing? And you know, I guess if you don't you know, communicate that across the, across the board, then, then you're not going to do it. You can have occupiers. We sent out an email yesterday for a client to 650 occupiers saying we want to gather your data to share with the landlord so that they can see what, you know, what's happening across the estate. Um, within five hours, we had 20% saying, yeah, that's fine. We'll sign up to that and we'll let you have the data. We had three replying saying, no, in no way, shape, or form are we going to get involved in this. We're not doing it. You're not. And two of them, I think, misunderstood what we were asking them. They thought we were getting in the way of things. Um, and one of them, who I thought was a big, you know, big retailer who was, who was giving it you know, the big I am on, on social media and, you know, and their, their policies of we're doing this, we're being green. It's a very we're doing this, but anyone else, it's up to you. So that collaboration piece of understanding that an occupier's scope one and two is a landlord's scope three and vice versa. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's the whole, the whole collaboration piece is how we're going to solve that, it. That's, that's encouraging that awareness is, awareness is growing, that data sharing is, is growing. Only three saying no is pr pretty good, I, mm. su I suppose. Hopefully no more will we'll say, say no, but we'll go with three yeah. as, the, as the target. Um, but it sounds like what, what comes next is we need the tools, and as Sarah's talked about, we need the skills. To, to do that, and uh, Jose, I wonder if you could jump in there around some of the some of the tools, some of the skills that maybe there we need to be utilising more to to help us actually turn those targets into actions. Um, hello, um, uh, firstly, thank you to EG to for having me here, and um, yeah, very glad to be here to speak about this exciting topic. Um, regarding the tools, um, I would say. More than tools um, would be incentives. It would be the governmental um, um, policy to to implement um, to force you know like um, occupiers to force landlords to improve the energy consumption of buildings. So we have seen how this year you know with the change of the building regulation, also with means um, coming to force next year, um, um, and um, also with the um, new. Um, entities um, providing information and guidance in order how to um, get net zero carbon buildings, such as LETI, uh, UK uh, Green Building Council, uh, Bear Building Partnership, um, also um, CREM tool. So we have seen how actually these tools will help massively to understand when, when the, where the energy is going to be spent and um, how to tackle um, you know, like uh, the energy consumption in that regards. So, yeah, I think it's very important to start using um, this kind of um, analysis, this kind of um, um, initiatives, just to enforce uh, the 
the change in the industry, and somehow is to understand you know, where energy is being used and, and how to reduce it. Thank you. Sarah, you talked um, to Jose's point there as well about the solutions are already, he already here, and that was the uplifting bit of your, your um, excellent keynote. And then it was like, oh, that if they're already there, why aren't, we, why aren't we using them? How do we turn those increments, as you said, in, into leaps if, if everything's there for us already? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot wrapped up in, in that, Sam, in terms of turning those increments into upscaling. But I think um, one of the really important things that we talked about, but also speaks to the skills piece, is to the need to embed um, climate change, net zero, ESG targets into every single point of decision making. So um, one of the key areas, for example, around skills is making sure that it's not just about the property managers, about the architects, it's the engineers, it's also the fund managers, the investment managers, the asset managers, who have also have the right skills to kind of make those changes. Because what we really kind of suffer from in terms of upscaling is having the tools, but people not using, either not knowing that they're there or not knowing how to use them. And so, you know, there's a huge task there in making people that sure that the right tools are there for the right people. Um, and actually, I think where there needs to be a lot more upskilling and education is in that piece that links to the finance, that links to the, the money, as it were, uh, to make sure that those people who are in the charge of allocating that capital, uh, those people who are in charge of actually deciding what the asset management strategy looks like for the time that they're holding that building, sometimes that's quite short, sometimes it's quite long, depends, but for the time they're holding that building, what are they going to do with it? And I think right now is a really interesting time. We're going in, we're in recession, right? So what happens in the property market during that time? Development pipelines slow down, transactions slow down. So what do we do with that? First of all, we focus on making sure that the developments that are going through the pipeline are absolutely net zero ready when they come out the end. Secondly, we focus on existing buildings. Why? Because when we come out of recession, the investment in those existing buildings are where those investors are going to derive the value and kind of come out of the recession, start transacting again. And if they have invested during the recession, they'll be able to capitalise on that value. So I think for me, it's, uh, you know, we definitely have the technical tools. We've got lots of people who are skilled. We, should, we need more. Don't get me wrong. We definitely need more. But it's that part of the market that I think that needs that upskilling and that education, because unless we embed this in every single decision, you know, they won't be able to instruct the architects and the engineers in the right way or the property managers put it in their contracts, the occupiers put it in the lease, unless we've got that, that kind of piece uh, with that particular part of the industry. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, um, I'm reminded of one of my favourite political heroes and one of his quotes which speaks to this, um, Lyndon Johnson, who was um, really a genius, political genius, and he, during the um, Vietnam War, they were, uh, when they were, bombing South, they were bombing South Vietnam, and they were, sorry, bombing the Viet Cong, and they were in the north, and they were trying to, his advisors were saying to him, look, you know, the hearts and minds, we've got to win the hearts and minds, because otherwise we can't win this war. And that's where the phrase became popularised, and I was really noticing what you said earlier. And, um, and he said, when you've got them by the balls, the hearts and minds will follow. And I am, and it's one of my favourite quotes, because actually, this is where government, government has a monopoly on sort of violence and a monopoly on forcing people to do stuff. There's nobody else in the system who can do that. I was talking this morning with Chris Skidmore, who's doing the Net Zero Review, and we had, we had breakfast and we were talking about a bunch of different things. One thing in particular is in the Net Zero Review, which will come out quite soon. So the writing of it is almost done. It's going to be submitted. It will come out quite soon. There is going to be quite a lot on buildings. And he is not pulling back on what he thinks needs to happen, both legislatively and in regulations, around buildings. It is not, I think everybody has recognised in government, we can't just leave this to good people trying to do the right thing across a huge part of the value chain in the way that you were describing. 
Um, so I would watch out for that very carefully um, and use what is in that review. Why governments do reviews, right, is not necessarily just to get good ideas and to convene people. It's so that you can get an external person to force you to do what you were probably thinking of doing anyway. And so once we've got this review, it will enable us to push a lot of these things forward in a way that otherwise it'd just be the government coming up with these things. So watch out for that very, very carefully, because I think that you can only go so far voluntarily because they're just a bunch of people. And I go back to cost and money. There are a bunch of people who are going to be really struggling for their cash flow in all sorts of different ways. And saying to them, no, you have to do something a different way that may be more expensive in the short term because of this net zero objective is not going to work. So what you're going to need is you're going to need pretty set laws that will over time force a lot of this change. And that will, of course, drive down the cost of all sorts of other things that happen. What I take from that, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, is that... Um, that review is going to hold real estate by... I'm not going to do the hand movements. Real estate by the balls. Uh, and, and then my, I can't believe I'm saying this either. John, I'm going to say, do, does real estate need to be held by the balls or is it actually already... I'm sorry, I'm sorry to have the tone. For uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is well, clearly a very demure <laughs> conference and a very demure set of people. And, and this no, is the problem when you invite philistinic politicians <laughs> to come and speak. I don't think we're too far away from the clutch, put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think like, like every sector, um, there's always, there's, it's always really helpful if there is certainty. And I think what Bim's trying to sort of outline there is that hopefully that will give a level of certainty and a good level of direction such that, you know, the ducks then start to fall into the row a lot neater and a lot quicker. Because it's quite right insofar as that you will have in any sector those that are more inclined to push on because they believe it's the right thing to do, it's the correct course of action, fits with the business model, and you know, they've commercialised it, and off they go. But then you'll have big swathes, of the, big swathes of the sector that just don't see it that way. And then you get the intricacies. I mean, everybody in the, in, in the room is probably connected to real estate in some way, shape, or form. The real estate in particular is so diverse in its business model. You can get investment, divestment, holding, managing. It, it, it's, the myriad is, is actually un, quite unbelievable. So I think once you get that sort of carry through, um, it, it happens remarkably quickly. And I think, um, you know, regardless of what we think in the room about EPCs and their, and their relative quality and what, what they do, it's really interesting. As soon as that marker came out as to where they believe they wanted EPCs to be, You've seen now the market is beginning then to quite substantially shift around, right, how do we ensure that regardless of what the economic situations are like at the moment, it's, it's getting tougher, much, much tougher, granted. But on the backside of that, in 2030, is my portfolio still going to be relevant? Yes or no? Question mark. And that is very much a boardroom question. And once it's in the boardroom, it doesn't matter about where your finance is coming from, Finance will be found. Mm -hmm. Whether that finance is affordable these days, that's, that's, another, that's another, another thing to, 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 to tackle. But I think very much that sets the tone instantly. And it also bleeds into um, the net zero carbon pathways that many of us hold because it, it instinctively enacts a lot of Sarah's list in terms of like, well, how are we looking at the mechanics of this? How are we looking at our leasing structure? How are we looking at our supply chain, et cetera, et cetera? So that cascade starts to happen quite quickly. Can, can I ask a question? Because I, I am puzzled, stroke, worried about this. When the cost of capital, and I used to work in the city, so I always think about it in these terms. When the cost of capital was so cheap for best part of what, 10, 12 years, wherever mm -hmm. it was, and we didn't make sufficient investments as a sector or indeed as a country in lots of other different sectors into the sorts of things you're talking about as a whole. Obviously, some people did. Yeah. When the cost of capital goes up a lot, why are we confident that those investments will come? In terms of the outliers of, right, what's the, what's the income stream look like? And ultimately, it's holding that income stream. And what, does, what does it do for you? And that ultimately then provokes the, the situation of we don't want, to, want it to get worse. That's how a lot of the reaction tends to start, as opposed to 
10 years ago, you know, borrowing at nothing percent effectively. Um, great, happy days. Um, people filled their boots. Um, those that were a little bit more, a little bit more strategic, a little bit more coy in effect, were then starting to put those measures into place. And what you started to see is the market adjusting for sustainable finance in particular, attracting the better premiums for it. So that's where a lot of it then starts to then rally through. And then you'll find a lot of the debt providers, whether that be a lender or some other institution, mm. then starts to craft their product accordingly to try and attract that. And that is very, very attractive at the moment, regardless, regardless of that, as you say, the spikes that are going up and down. Up. But then, oh, sorry, Alex, sorry, I just want to jump in there quickly because I'd say it's an interesting point around, say, going back, slightly going back to this sort of who needs to be sort of grabbed by the proverbials uh, every now and again. Can't stop doing yeah, it. Yeah, no, I can't. I, I'm gonna do I don't want to do it with two hands at all. Um, um, but just back to the thing about 10 years ago, finance was cheap um, and people were sort of, I think there's an opinion that people were doing things, but um, I always come back to this thing of the only reason that real estate is such a big carbon impact in, in the globe is that we all need to be in real estate, whether we're a domestic occupier in a house or whether a company occupying an office or a you know, um, warehouse or a manufacturing site, whatever it might be. We, we have an industry in real estate because people need to be inside. That's it, right? Um, and those are the people who are making the decision on whether they're actually improving the building or not. They're the people who are saying, no, you're not having my data. No, you're not coming into my site. No, you're not putting solar on the roof because it's my building. We're an FRI lease. I've got it for 10 years. See you in 10 years' time. They are the blocker and they're the, the enabler. And I had a conversation with someone 10 years ago, or thereabouts. Um, we did a survey for, his, uh, for their warehouse distribution centre and they had these old sodium lights and a huge place, like rows and rows and rows of them. And we said, how long are these on for a day? And he went, oh, 24 hours. I went, but you're not open 24 hours. He went, no, 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 but if I turn them off, they might not come back on. So we leave them on 24 hours. So then we said to him, okay, great, well, let's do a, do a spec for LED for you. So we went away, did an LED spec, three-year payback, fully financed, wasn't going to cost them a penny, and would have paid back in three years and was going to save him something like £75,000 a year on his 120 grand a year running cost for that site. It was huge, these lamps. Um, and I took in the proposal, and he said, look, I'm so busy with my business, if you want... And this is the most ridiculous comment I've ever heard from an occupier. If you walked into my office with a wheelbarrow full of cash, I wouldn't have time to talk to you. So that was... Finance is cheap. He deserves to lose points for yeah. stupidity. Three-year payback. I, to I totally agree. But, then, but that's the whole thing about this grab people by the balls and make them do something, mm -hmm. right? The, and I'll, I'll keep coming back to data because it's what we're on at the moment in terms of ZTP. But, you know, there's this whole thing about the ICO have said that, that half-hour data or interval data is owned by the person who consumed the energy at the point of time that the data was recorded, right? Which I agree with. But... That means that they can hold back that data. And we can't make reductions on anything we can't see. So we're looking at our clients at the moment, managing agents for funds, saying, how do we reduce the energy consumption across your estate? And there's still that element of, these are our big occupiers, these are our big tenants, they'll be the ones that want to do it. Don't worry about the tail. You know, we've got 5,500 tenants, let's concentrate on these 400 right now because they're the ones that our client, the landlord, is engaged with. But the person who owns the retail unit in Sheffield as a retirement investment... Don't worry about them. They won't want to put the money into it. But the whole point of this about getting hold of the data is I personally believe there needs to be a, a step change in terms of grabbing by the balls of the occupier and the tenant and the people who are actually consuming the energy and say, look, this isn't bank details. You know, we're not talking about your personal data here. It's energy consumption data. And frankly, it's not up to you to stand in the way of our global shift towards net zero. This is something we have to do. And you don't have the right to prevent us from doing it as a, as a planet, as a country, as, a, as, a, as an industry. And there's too many people, I think, standing in the way of that. And yes, we need to protect companies' rights and, and all that sort of thing, and people's rights. But we need to, I think, become more open source when it comes to, to data sharing. And it, take it back to COP26, COP27, it's all about transparency and collaboration. But that's all this sort of, you know, countries collaborating with each other, great. But when it comes down to occupiers collaborating with landlords, collaborating with managing agents, and, you know, it's just not happening on the ground. And I think there needs to be a, you know, yeah, a clench. There's, yeah, there's a role for legislation there, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about legislation, and I'm delighted to hear, by the way, that out of the Skidmore review will come a very specific focus on the built environment. That's great. 
because actually for the industry for several years has been operating with a significant degree of uncertainty about the policy direction. So that's fantastic. I think that um, in relation to the issue we were just talking about, you know, we think about kind of legislation in relation to buildings or energy, but this is legislation relating to data. Mm. And certainly, you know, uh, when we talk to our members at the Best Buildings Partnership, you know, that is one piece of legislation that would free up a whole load of pain, would it not, John? It certainly In would. terms of how you gather that data, yeah. where you get it from, and the access you have to that data. Mm. That is actually something where legislative intervention could play a really important mm. role. Mm. So I think also people are worried, mm. because people are worried that there's going to be penalty. Mm. So if they're handing over, it's, it's a cracker, they've never asked for it before. Why are you doing it now? Why are you doing it now? Why, why, what, what's, the, what's the consequence of me handing over this information? And as you say, some total of nothing. Um, <laughs> other than you, we may even be able to reduce your bill because you might be able to bill you more accurately. How's that? Mm. Um, but yeah, there's still that sort of, because people haven't been asked to do it before, it's a, new, it's a new thing. Culturally, it's different. There is that nervousness to hand things over. And as you quite rightly say, I mean, more altruistically, you know, why are you standing in the way? Mm. Um, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing should technically or change for you for the worse. So. Well, I think you said in your your keynote about sort of we're operating in the shadows in the dark, right? Yeah. And I think with the some of the occupiers say we've done through these projects, but but they've come back and said no, we're we're more than happy to pull the data together, package it up nicely, and send it to you every six months. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I mean, it's better than nothing. But why are you happy with doing the manual work to pull it together and cleanse it? for lack of a better term, and then sent it to us rather than just let, it, let us get it from the source. Because all this data is in a data lake for the whole of the country. And we can just dip into it. But the people who hold the keys on the data lake, so all your energy supply, you can have it. Hmm. If you're anyone else, no. And it's, it's, that's the crazy craziness around the rule. And it's, I think if you shine a light on people, going back to the operating in the dark, if you say, well, look, you don't get a chance to pull your data together, wrap it all up in a nice bow, and then send it off. It's actually going to be there for everyone to see then they're actually going to start making change because you don't have a chance to control the narrative. The narrative is in the, the numbers, in the kilowatt hours, and you can't, you can't change those. They don't, they don't lie. Bim, is that a message that you're, you're hearing in, in government from, from the real estate industry, that actually it's the, the you know, legislation around data you know, forcing people to, to release it, to understand that actually this is a good thing for them. There's, there's, you know, if we talk about money being the, the powerhouse here, they might save some money on this. Are these, are these messages that you're hearing, hearing back from, from you, real estate? I think you do hear it. I must be honest, though, and say that data is an area that people are quite wary of politically because it's... I mean, look at how people even react to smart meters, let alone anything else. It's very difficult politically to to force people to give away data. What's probably better is if you have owners of buildings who embed structures that make it impossible for people to not give data. That is a much easier way of doing it, though I recognise that's often easier said than done. Mm. Um, so I think that, I mean, look, I just, I just don't see a government in the near future really forcing much more in terms of data but I do see all sorts of things trying to get people to get to that place I just think it because a lot of people react quite negatively to that sort of thing it feels intrusive mm -hmm. um, and they say well can't you own the building can't you you know can't can't you put all sorts of stuff in why are you forcing me to give up my data that means that my competitors will know how much energy I use that means that they can work out what my PL looks like I mean whether that's true or not doesn't really matter one thing that I was thinking about, and actually goes with something else we were talking about this morning, is uh, listed buildings, old buildings. Not just listed, but, but old ones. And it is sort of completely ridiculous how local authorities treat the management of old buildings to the extent that I think something quite radical is likely to change there quite soon. Uh, because if it doesn't, then we've got a huge problem. And I think there is an awareness of that and, a, uh, and I think there is the political will to force that um, using the, the, I won't say using the cover because that sounds nefarious, but, but using the, the importance of the environmental agenda 
to actually force local authorities to allow a lot of old buildings to be brought into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean losing the, losing the facade, it doesn't mean losing the landscape, but I, but I found um, how local authorities tend to man deal with old buildings is sort of really appalling, and that needs a big shake-up. I want to stick with the, the data point just for a little bit more, and then I'm going to throw out any questions. We've got about 10 minutes left, left so start brewing some audience. Um, because it makes me worry that that's the reason that we haven't really seen much action from 2026, because we're so worried about how people feel about data. And that, that sounds like that's where we really need to put the effort in um, educating, of upskilling people that, you know, that, that is the solution. And actually, it, you know, it probably doesn't have to cost that much to, to deliver on that solution, but it's the, it's the massive barricade. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that will help by that is not perhaps, although we could have a debate about mm -hmm. the actual access to the data itself, but of course, one of the things is disclosure. And, um, you know, we're, we're awaiting the response to the government consultation on the int introduction of mandatory in-use performance disclosure for commercial buildings. So that is, as you say, putting the onus on the owner of the building to disclose that data and that is one of the things where you know it would be great to see movement on that because that would actually free up um, uh, you know the industry to disclose and for us to then get access to that data um, it's not going to be easy and I think it's you know if that does come through I think it's going to be a hard um, a bitter pill to swallow if you like for the commercial owners of that property, because we know from the work that we do at BBP, when you do that disclosure, in the first year, it's not going to look pretty. Mm. You know, the reality is we can see this. That's not just our data, but the Committee on Climate Change. You know, emissions from non-domestic buildings basically flatlined. We know it's not going to be good. So there are two things. We need that disclosure, but also we need the industry to be brave. And we need to face up to that reality, which is that many of our existing buildings are not performing as they should. And we need owners to be able to say, yeah, OK, understood. But once we've disclosed that data, what can we then do to actually increase incrementally year on year? So you need that not to happen once. You need to happen every year. And then you can see the improvement and the owners can see actually what improvements they're making. But that is, is going to be tough. But to be honest with you, I think that's, you know, a really important way of making the markets move. And they do it in other places. As you know, Sam, you know, in Australia, they have had a neighbour scheme since the late 1990s. And they have achieved a phenomenal transformation of their commercial buildings there. And that list that we talked about doesn't exist in Australia because they just do it anyway. It's part of their culture. You know, there is a similar scheme in the US, Energy Star. You know, we're not kind of pushing the boundaries here at UK. We're just catching up. So, you know, that, that is one thing that, you know, in terms of the whole data point, OK, we can't get access to the data. We'd really like that too. Mm. We'd be valuable. So we can't free, free that up legislatively. Let's have the performance disclosure, put the onus on the owners and see where that gets us. But does that question around the being brave thing because mm. I, I totally get around the political will and the election coming up in 2024 and we don't want to rock the boat too much but um the other thing around you know back, back to this <laughs> clenching but um you know even in the the political will the you know the the disclosure projects you know tcfd every one that i can remember over the past sort of and they seem to be never ending so over the past sort of seven to ten years they've all been aimed at the the big companies the big occupiers the pension funds that you know and i get that we start at the top but i think all of them have started with a we'll start at the top and then we'll come down and then it will soon encrunch everyone and every company in the country will have to disclose but then it seems like we sort of go to the big companies and then we go well, let's not do that one anymore let's introduce tcfd and it'll just be the big companies and then there'll be something else and it'll just be the big companies but at a certain point in time there needs to be someone who says look right new rule everyone's got to got to report on their energy consumption and their, and, their, and their carbon footprint, whether that's a company or a domestic property. And then you'll soon see people going, oh, hold on a minute, isn't there an easier way of doing this? Well, yeah, we can get the data straight from the source. Oh, yeah, can you just do that, please? But unless everyone's doing it, then we're not going to move forward to this, to this end point, to this target. 
and someone, whether it's government putting legislation in, whether it's, uh, yeah, well, no, I think it has to be government. Someone's got to be brave enough to say, right, we're doing it, and it's going to happen. And it has to be cross-party, so it can't be repealed when the next parliament comes in. It's just got to happen, and we've all got to move forward and say, yeah, because it's my father-in-law, yeah, smart meters. Oh, I'm not even a smart meter. I'm not even anyone know when I'm in the shower. Nobody cares, John. Like, <laughs> you know, and there's Do you want to talk more about your relationship with your father-in-law for us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, all, we're all friends. Talk about it. But yeah, yeah. I just think we've got, to, we've got to get past that. You know, we're not talking about bank details. We're talking about energy data. Um, Jose, you were nodding along, along there. This, this sort of <coughs> freeing up of, of data that, um, would, would help in, in your role, help you advise clients? And... Oh, yeah, definitely. Energy, actually, you know, like in energy consumption is very difficult to get from clients sometimes. And I think it's completely key to understand how the business is operating, how it's been maintained. Um, I think um, moving, moving forward, I think data um, or metering strategy is completely uh, necessary just to, to tackle and to understand where did, you know, the different um, measures and recommendations should be applied to reduce energy consumption effectively. Um, and I see, for instance, you know, like in the EPCs, we, we can see how, you know, like there it, it talks about the primary energy and everything has been, everybody's been fine with that, like for a long time. I understand it's not like accurate information, but I think nothing would change at all. I think it's just needed just to share that information and to understand, you know, like, um, yeah, the energy consumption in general from in buildings. So as um, Alex was saying before, if we don't really know uh, where the energy uh, is being uh, used, we cannot really um, do anything in order to, to reduce that energy. Um, so I think it's key um, to start uh, gathering that information, to have mechanisms to improve the metering strategy, and definitely just to move to um, operational energy um, rating in general. So. And I know we all hate change, but we kind of get used to it after a while, don't, don't we? So we have um, just uh, about four minutes left, so I'm going to throw it out to, to you guys. Um, do raise a hand. Look at all this. Um, and we have some mics. So if I have two down here, one over here. Oh, well, good save. Good save. <laughs> good catch. Thank you. Please introduce yourself and then ask your question. Uh, Bastian from uh, Equium. Uh, we're a... Um company that delivers the digital layer between landlords and occupiers to help them communicate, help them get data from their occupiers on how active they are in their space, etc., what type of amenities they like, what, what is it that drives those occupiers to come back to the office. We've seen through research that we've done internally with our clients that there is a massive shift, obviously due to COVID, that people will stay and work from home. They want flexibility for the office. The office needs to become a destination for them to come back. So my question is really, it's, it's two parts. One is obviously, do you think that the impact of COVID and the flexible working requirement and demands from employees is going to obviously help reduce energy in the built and in the commercial industry? But do you think that the commercial industry is therefore not going to continue investing because they feel that there is no need because the people are staying at home? And secondly, around something that um, I think John or Alex said, um, why can't you just force the occupiers to go with your agenda in your leases? Why is it not just simple? If you want to work here in my fantastic building, and I know Derwent has a fantastic stack of buildings, why do you not just sign up to that? Because it will help you in the long run as well and make it the law or legislation that you do internally. Thank you. Good questions. I can come back on the COVID one. So when we uh, gather data from our members' portfolios, we've got about 1,400 assets that we gather data in. We gather that data every year for the last over a decade. We also gathered it during the COVID year. So these are large commercial office buildings, uh, retail, industrial, etc. We found that during COVID, when buildings were lying empty, the average across all of our portfolio was a 19% reduction. So even though the buildings were empty and quite a lot of them not 
basically having anybody in at all, the energy consumption only reduced by 20%. Mm. And there are lots of issues kind of caught up in that. So first of all, um, the, build, the way the building consumes energy, yes, how occupiers use it influences that, but there are the core services that have to be kept running. <coughs> and the owner has to deliver that in the conditions of the lease, they must keep the building open and accessible and working at a certain level of kind of comfort and so on, um, regardless of how many people are in there. So, you know, actually empty buildings are not, did not reduce our energy consumption significantly. And secondly, you know, there are things to do with that. So for the lease requires the owner to do that. So there are conditions built into the lease where they have to have, you know, certain things running. Plus or minus 24 degrees. Exactly, 7 plus or minus 7 24 degrees. Yeah. Actually, we had a really interesting meeting yesterday where we gathered together owners and managing agents, and we were talking about lots of issues. One of the things we were talking about, green leases, and what can we put in the lease? A really interesting question that was raised is, what can we take out of it? Yeah. What can we actually take out of the lease in terms of what the owner is required to do that effectively means that those buildings are continue to run despite the fact that the occupiers aren't there? So I think that, that you know, I think we need to be a little bit careful about kind of how we think around the occupation of building and, and we need to learn from what we've learned during COVID about how buildings operate and what we can do to change things systemically that allow us to actually take much closer account of occupancy um, in commercial buildings for sure. And time to rip up the 1954 Act, clearly. I was done. So, so oh, we, we'll run out of time, but I'm going to do two quick questions and super quick answers. <coughs> Here. Hi there, Angie Hobson, Steam Advisory, um, linking ESG and DI targets in built environment projects. I've stated it there as well, um, and maybe this will come out in the Skidmore and, and whether there's a rethink that we now know through Climate Trace and all sorts of other bodies that the uh, uh, oil and gas sector is vastly underreported GHG emissions. Will that take the pressure off or the onus off the real estate sector to decarbonize? Um, and is there a risk that we're underreporting as well? Who wants to go for that? So I, I guess I can come back by saying, you know, we've seen uh, commercial real estate industry emissions go down as a result of the decarbonisation <coughs> of the grid. Sorry. But we're going to be adding new buildings into that. And effectively, you know, it doesn't take the pressure off because actually every kilowatt hour counts. And every kilowatt hour in a building means that you've got to have the infrastructure to deliver that, whether it's renewable or other. And so, you know, I, d I don't think it should take the pressure off at all. On the basis that, in terms of the total sum, it turns out we probably are a smaller contributor to the overall pie. Whether that then becomes kind of... Yeah. I, th I, th I, think, I, think, I think the trick as well is which lens you're looking at it through. Kilowatts or carbon? Mm. Carbon, very good. Kilowatts, not so good. Mm. Because ultimately that's your truth. Because the, you've got this little trick that we play, which is called a conversion factor, which is fundamentally predicated by your grid. So in, in response to what Sarah was saying about Australia and the States, their grid is terrible. Ours is as bad. So hence why we can pull through that benefit into the conversion factor. Mm. But then if you just you ignore that, you just look at kilowatts, it's not so great. Mm. So I think that's, that's where you really need to sort of place the emphasis on are we genuinely reducing kilowatt hour intensity, yes or no? Fantastic. Success, yes or no? One last question. I'm stealing five minutes of your coffee time, then you can have big chats out, outside with coffee. Just here. Thank you. Very quick question. Isn't it just more simple to use the funding? Real estate runs on funding. So if we put pressure on the funders to only lend when there's more sustainable credentials on refurbishment, building, and their operational costs, Audemars Bank stood up in a presentation recently and said they will only fund going forward. It then puts pressures on developers then that are flipping in five years' time to actually put more green credentials into their buildings. Otherwise, the buildings will just become obsolete. Um, that works sometimes. It doesn't work in other circumstances. Let me explain why. It works when you have an ability in a relatively short period of time to make the changes that you need to make 
when you have buildings, and without banging on about old buildings, when you have buildings that require a significantly higher level of investment to get to the same level, then those buildings will basically be stranded. Nobody will take them on. That leads to all sorts of other problems. So in reality, what would end up happening is you'd end up with two standards or three. You'd end up with ones that were modern buildings, slightly older buildings, or less complicated buildings. And then you would get claims of unfairness all over the place because people would say, well, hold on, I'm being punished because I happen to own a difficult building in a, in a poor part of the country. I'm trying to do great things and I can't get to the standard of that new building on, East, on Euston Square. Do you see what I mean? And so you end up in actually quite a difficult place. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, it would end up being more complicated than you think on top of the fact that providers of capital don't understand buildings. That's not their skill. They understand capital. So they would feel very nervous about arbitrating a lot of those disputes. So it's, it's, it's hard. I think you could definitely put in things to make it easier. You know, EPCs we've done for residential, and we're going to have to reform those, by the way, because they don't really work very well. But that is, um, and I hope that Chris looks at that, that he is, and hopefully he'll come up with something that makes sense. But EPC, that type of thing, is probably the way to go because I think it takes, it's a bit broader, it takes into account more things so that you could only fund something that hits a minimum threshold mm -hmm. that was not set so high that it would outlaw or, 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 or make it very difficult to use, to make use of certain type of buildings, but it would, it would force everybody to put at least a little bit of effort. But the downside of that is that somebody who say the equivalent of, I don't know, EPCC and we're trying to, you know, and we say we set that as the minimum, you've got no incentive then for that person to go from C to A. Mm -hmm. So do you see what I mean? It's, it's not as straightforward as it may otherwise appear. But that's where something like Neighbours overrides everything that EPC does. And it looks at the ongoing energy performance of the building, which is the most important part. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> I think it's been a really fascinating conversation, clearly one that can carry on. And I do hope that you carry it on with, with with coffee, and I'm, I'm going to come back actually, Bim, to your, your point that you know this is this is simple, but it's not not easy. And actually, um, we all need to work together to make it easier um, so that we can actually move move forward. Um, and I know there is desire, huge desire in this industry to to make a difference. So so let's all uh, do as much together as we can to turn that. Um, simple into easy as well. Um, but please put your hands together for our excellent panel.